I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Many of you will never forget hearing about the tragic uh, twin bombings that took place near the finish line of the Boston Marathon this last spring. Sadly, uh, three people died in that incident. Uh, Over 250 were injured. But aside from this, uh, this recent tragedy, the Boston Marathon truly is a great event. Uh, it's a great contest. It's considered an American tradition and one of the world's best-known road racing events. In fact, it is the oldest annual marathon in the world, running continuously since 1897. Back in April of 1978, a man named Art Carey, he was a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He ran his 10th Boston Marathon, and then following the race, he uh, wrote a first-person account of what it was like to participate in this grueling race that lasts 26 miles, 385 yards, a a race in which his feet would hit the pavement approximately 46,000 times over a three-hour period. That year, nearly 4,700 athletes from every part of the United States and 22 foreign countries officially entered the race. There were lawyers present, doctors, politicians, stockbrokers, professors, truck drivers, plumbers, carpenters, housewives, teachers, students, kids under the age of 10, grandfathers over the age of 70, professionals and everyday people, each with their own special dreams but a common passion for exercise and physical challenges. Art Carey writes in his article, Pop, a sound like a distant cap pistol, then a cheer that swells to a roar as it ripples through the crowd of runners. There is a surging, bobbing movement up front, but for me, sandwiched in the middle of this great mass, there is no room to move ahead. Minutes pass before I even cross the starting line. And I do so virtually jogging in place. Then the jog turns into a run, and I shift into high gear and effortless floating sensation. The momentum of 4,000-plus runners sweeps me along, and the clamor of thousands of spectators rings in my ears and swells my chest. By the time we reach Framingham, about seven miles into the race, the pack has thinned out enough so that I can run freely and comfortably without worrying about elbowing the fellow next to me. Consisting of mostly gently rolling hills, the course has been easy so far, and the cool temperature keeps me from overheating. I feel strong and full of pep. My spirits are further bolstered by the enthusiasm of the spectators. The entire route is lined by what seems like half the population of New England. The people spray us with garden hoses and offer water, ice cubes, sponges, orange slices, and Gatorade. In Auburndale, the 17-mile mark, the course begins to ascend. It is a gentle but inexorable prelude to the torturous series of Newton Hills. By now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half-dollar-sized blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. You see, carbohydrates that a person eats are converted by the liver and muscles into glycogen for storage. Glycogen burns rapidly to provide quick energy, and runners can usually store enough of it for about 18 to 20 miles of running, but at some point, glycogen runs low. And the body must then obtain energy by burning stored fat, which does not burn as readily. When this happens, the runner experiences dramatic fatigue and is said to have hit the wall. Kerry continues, Now the real battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb right, left, right, left, right, left, I keep watching my feet move, one after the other, hypnotized by the rhythm, the passage of the asphalt below. Chop, 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 pound, 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 still pushing, shoulder cramps, leaden legs, seething blisters, dry throat, empty stomach. Stop. Keep moving. Must finish. 
A radio, a radio listening spectator reports that the race is over. Six miles away, Bill Rogers has won again. His ordeal is done. Mine is about to begin. Heartbreak Hill. The last, the longest, and the steepest. A half-mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and the faltering. Hundreds of people stand along the hill, watching this final grueling gauntlet. They feed us, coax us, urge the walkers to jog, the joggers to run, and the runners to speed on. I can barely see or hear them. I am aware of nothing but pain. My stride has degenerated into a mincing gait. My thighs ache. My joints are seething wounds. Bone grinds against bone. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes riveted catatonically to the ground, trudge along in their bare feet, holding the shoes that have blistered and bloodied them in their hands. Others team up, limping arm in arm like maimed and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front. Finally, the distinctive profile of the Prudential Building looms on the horizon. I begin to step up the pace, faster, faster, smoother, smoother. Suppress the pain, finish up strong, careful, not too fast. Don't cramp, turn at the police barricade. One more hill, keep moving, up to the top now. Turn again, just a block to go. I can see the yellow stripes 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing off my toes, defying clutching leg cramps, 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards, cheers and clapping, 10 yards, finish line, an explosion of bliss and euphoria. I am clocked in at 2 hours, 50 minutes, and 40 seconds. My place, 1,176. I find the figures difficult to believe, but if they are accurate, then I have just run the best marathon of my life. While times and places are important, and breaking a personal record is thrilling, especially as you grow older, he writes, the real joy of the Boston Marathon, however, is just finishing. When I hear that account, I can't help but think about those to whom the author of Hebrews was writing to. Primarily a group of Jewish Christians who had made a profession of faith in Jesus and were trying to give their undivided attention to Christ. And then sprinkled among these believing Jews were some who had not yet been saved, those who had identified superficially as professing Christians within this community of faith, but there in name only, not in truth. And most all of them were experiencing real problems. The pressure was on. The heat was turned up. There was a great conflict and persecution. Their families were cutting them off. Their friends were turning them out. They were being shamed. They were being reproached. But in the midst of this situation, the writer of Hebrews says... Don't get tired in the race of faith. Don't get weary, but get your second wind. Let me read our text for this morning. If you'll follow along there, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. He says, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. You'll notice there in verse 12 that the writer returns to the theme of running, which he has already introduced back in verse 1 of this chapter. And so he retains the imagery of, of, the, of the athletic contest. And this, this imagery is helpful because it teaches us that the Christian life is a race to be, to be run. A race, verse 1 states, in which encumbrances need to be shed. 
anything that hinders faith, whether it be ambition or anxieties or hobbies or wealth or fame or prestige, a race in which sins need to be forsaken, especially the one that is continually warned about in this particular book, and that is the sin of persistent unbelief. And keep in mind, this race is not a 100-yard dash, but a long and sometimes agonizing marathon. And that means what? That means aches and pains. That means fatigue. That means thirst and hunger. That means disorientation and discouragement. In fact, what does verse 3 say that these professing Christians were in danger of doing? Growing weary and losing heart. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. Well, what does the writer do for them in this passage? Well, he, he does what any good coach would do with an athlete who is struggling. He encourages him to keep going, to, to keep pushing ahead. To do the very thing that the runner is absolutely convinced that he cannot do. But which the coach knows he can do. Notice his exhortation in verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And Think about this description. Weak, drooping, feeble hands. Right? I mean, that's, that's the first thing that happens to a good runner when he gets tired. Right? His arms drop. Then what? Feeble, disabled, paralyzed knees. That's the second thing, right? That's the second thing that happens. His knees begin to wobble. So what does the writer exhort them to do? He says to to strengthen them, to strengthen the hands, to strengthen the knees, which which is a command that comes from a word from which we derive our English word orthopedic. So the sense here is to make upright or or to make straight. So again, reverting to his athletic figure of speech, the author bids his readers brace their embattled limbs and press on to the goal. In modern coaching terms, he is saying, straighten up. Get those hands and those feet up. Suck it in. And what makes this even more impactful is the fact that the author of Hebrews does what he has already done so, so, many, so many times already in this book, and that is to quote from the Old Testament. And in this case, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 35. And, and this is so powerful because Isaiah 35 is a kingdom chapter. And, and it's powerful because, because Isaiah 35 is a message to a very discouraged nation, a, a group of people that were facing exile. And so you you might want to turn there. Isaiah 35, he says there in verse 1, The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with, with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And then here's, our, here's our, uh, the verse that he pulls out. Verse 3, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those, verse 4, with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the, in the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting design, joyful shouting design, with everlasting joy upon their heads, and they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I mean, what a boost of encouragement 
for the writer of Hebrews to refer back to that particular prophecy. It's as if he's saying, come on, don't quit. Don't run out of gas now. Pick it up. Pick it back up again. There's victory on the horizon. Strengthen the hands. Strengthen the knees. And in verse 13, make straight paths for your feet. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, possibly another reference back to the Old Testament, perhaps Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26. Simply saying, stay on God's paths. Keep to the running lane which has been assigned to you. Keep your steps from wavering, swerving, neither to the right nor to the left. Why? So that what is lame may, be not, may not be put out of joint or dislocated. Literally turned aside or, or turned out of the way. So that it does not become totally incapacitated. Ultimately, so that you don't quit. So that you or anyone else in this race, so that you, if you profess to know Christ, or anyone in this church will be able to finish this marathon of faith. Now, what do you do? You've been running the race. But you've gotten up to that 20-mile mark or so, and you've hit the wall. How do you get a second wind? Well, let me point out three things from this passage. We'll call them three essential responses when you, spiritually speaking, hit the wall. They're controlling it. I love it. (laughs) Three essential responses when you, spiritually speaking, hit the wall. Number one. Grasp a biblical perspective of your trial. Grasp a biblical perspective of your trial. You'll notice the therefore in verse 12. And that little word is significant because it points out the fact that the strengthening and the straightening of verses 12 and 13, which need to take place, are preceded by some very important truths concerning the troubles and sometimes painful circumstances in the Christian life. So what are some of those helpful reminders? Well, let me give you five of them. For starters, it isn't as bad as it could be. It isn't as bad as it could be. You'll notice back up in verse 4 of Hebrews 12, he says this, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Sometimes we often forget that. We think that it could not get any worse, right? But the very fact that you have all made it to church today tells me that you've not been striving to this degree against sin, right? And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm at that point where I'm sort of hitting a wall spiritually and I'm looking for that second win and and I'm thinking, woe is me and all these difficulties and all these challenges, it's amazing. God tends to bring someone into my life to share with me the things that they're going through. And it makes me realize it's not as bad as it could be, right? It could be a lot more difficult. So just a simple thing to remind ourselves of, just to help us to sort of get reoriented as we're going through persecution or through some difficult situation, just to, just to get a biblical perspective on our trial and to remember it's not as bad as it could be. Very simple truth, something sometimes we often forget. Number two, many have gone before you. Many have gone before you. I mean, this is the thing, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the temptation is to think that when we're going through something difficult that nobody else has ever gone through this, right? This is unique to us. This is unique to me. But those to whom this letter was sent, like us, are not only contestants, not the only contestants, nor are they the first contestants. What about chapter 11, right? I mean, you've got Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, the prophets of Israel and Judah, men and women of whom the world was not worthy, the Scripture says. All of them, witnesses, witnesses who bear testimony that the race can be successfully run. 
and that the rewards are beyond comprehension. Another one, something we often forget, God is for you. God is for you. If you are a Christian, the pain and the trouble that you are experiencing is not a sign of the hatred of God, but of the love of God. You'll notice there in verse 6, he says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So our persecution is not a sign of God's treating us as enemies, but as sons. So we're not, we're not commanded here in verses 12 and following to do things that will get God to adopt us as his children. We are being commanded to act like people who are utterly convinced that we are already adopted through faith and that our Heavenly Father loves us. A fourth thing, discipline does have a purpose. Discipline has a purpose. The reality is that the suffering of Christ for us has dramatically changed our suffering into something radically different than ordinary punishment. Or we can say it this way, he has taken the punishment out of our suffering. So if that's the case, what remains of God's discipline in our lives? Well, a lot of things. Purifying is left. Training is left. Deepening and sobering and refining are left. Reminds me of that verse from the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. It says, When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So your suffering is not meaningless but it is designed for your good and for your holiness. Notice verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful yet to those who have been trained by it. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, this, this suffering and this reproach and this pain, this is part of our Heavenly Father's program of educating His children. A program designed to foster spiritual growth and maturity and to prevent further sinfulness in our lives. A fifth one is Jesus is your example and power. Jesus is your example and power. And this is perhaps the greatest factor that can make consistent endurance possible. You'll notice in verse 2, he says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's saying, sure, l- listen to the testimony of those who have gone before. You need to do that. Uh, They can help you a lot uh, to, to know what to lay aside. But above all else, he says, fix your attention on Jesus. He is your example. And think about this. Even though Jesus was sinless, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 5, verse 8, that he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In other words, the design of God in the suffering of his son was not only that he might bear our punishment, but that he might learn the depths and the dimensions of faithfulness and obedience that could not be learned any other way. And if that was true for him, how much more so for us? So Jesus is your example, but he's more than that because he can do what no one else can do. He can impart faith to you. And he can bring it to perfection at the end. He awaits you when you finish the race and when you reach the goal. But he is also with you to strengthen your endeavor and to guard your steps along the way. So Jesus is not out there somewhere. 
He is within us by faith, and he is imparting strength to us moment by moment, day by day, year by year as we look to him. Are you struggling to take another step? Have you hit a wall? Do you need a second wind? Then don't forget these fundamental truths. Grasp a biblical perspective of your trial. The second essential response when you hit the wall is get after peace and holiness. Get after peace and holiness. Take a look at verse 14. He says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The word, the word pursue here is, is a uniquely aggressive word. It's a very strong word. It means to strive for, to, to earnestly chase after, or even to persecute. It's the same word that's translated in the book of Acts when it speaks of men following the apostle Paul from city to city to make his life miserable. So Paul would go, he'd move on to the next town, and men would, would, would pursue him and persecute him. They would chase him down to try to make his life difficult. That's the, that's the term that, that the writer's using here. He's saying, you need to be persecuting love or, or, or peace, persecuting sanctification and holiness, striving for it, earnestly chasing after it. So to strive for what? Well, he mentions two things. First is his peace with all men. And we have other scriptures that urge us to chase after peace, right? I mean, there, there's a number of them in the New Testament. Ephesians 4, 1, Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Romans fourteen nineteen. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That sounds simple enough, right? Pursue peace. We can do that, can't we? Well, I'll remind you, he's not simply saying here that we're to be concerned about being at peace with everyone. Or that we are to simply be just interested in being at peace with your brothers and sisters. He is saying that you need to strive after it, or you can say to track it down. Don't let anything put you off or get in your way of this. Pursue it with all of your heart. Make it your aim. Make it your goal. By the way, you do know what happens when Christians don't strive after peace, right? when they don't value peace, when, when, when they don't think that it matters or, or they don't think that maybe it applies to their situation and so they let themselves off the hook, say, well, I don't necessarily need to pursue peace maybe in this particular circumstance. But you know what happens in churches when that goes on, right? Discouragement shows up. Divisions and factions start happening in the church. A concern for the things of God slowly fades away. Members of the church have very little love for one another. And a once lively church body slowly transforms into a dead and an uninviting gathering. So listen, I'll be the first, I'll be the first to admit, every, everybody's got problems. I got problems. Okay, We all have problems. We're all selfish. I mean, to some extent or another. Occasionally, we are self-serving, right? Many times we are self-serving, proud, occasionally apathetic, possibly unforgiving, maybe even vengeful at times. Every once in a while, we, we say or we do horrible things to one another. We think horrible things about each other sometimes. But instead of our sinfulness becoming a means by which we are humbled and broken and made more like Jesus as we deal biblically with these things, somehow, some way in the church, we settle for civility. We don't deal with the log in our own eye. Uh, we, don't, we don't actually go and ask for forgiveness. 
We don't lovingly confront those that offend us. We, we pretend that things are fine. We just sort of sweep them under the rug and we pretend that everything's okay when they're not. We withhold forgiveness. We withhold grace from others. We withhold mercy from others. And over time, we begin to partition off certain people in our minds. Some of you used to interact with all kinds of people in the church. But now, well, you know, there are these three or maybe five or these ten individuals that you're still keeping score with. Because you've sort of sectioned them off in your mind and in your heart. And eventually, more and more people get added to that exclusion list. Until you get to the place where your church consists of just a handful of friends. And everybody else, well, they don't, they don't really count. Listen, folks, that, that is how churches die. One hurt at a time. One unresolved issue at a time. And ultimately, thousands of decisions not to strive for peace. Now, what does this have to do with perseverance in the Christian life in the midst of hardship? Well, it has everything to do with it. Because that sort of thing requires an entire community to pull it off. It takes an entire body of believers pulling together, looking after each other, sinning but confessing and repenting, confronting and being confronted, forgiving and being forgiven, having the hard but good conversations over and over and over again. When that's not happening, people don't run the race with endurance. And many of them drop out of the race altogether. Well, the other thing he says here that we should be striving for, he calls it the, the sanctification. And what he's talking about here is, is simply practical holiness. We, we know that all true believers have obtained God's holiness or righteousness judicially, but Scripture is also clear that there is a present sanctification which is to be demonstrated in our lives. It's a process by which we increasingly conform to the perfect standing that we already possess by faith in Christ. In other words, our lives, our actions, our communication, our way of relating to others, our thoughts and our desires should all become progressively more Christ-like over time. But here's the deal. That doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen to you while you are preoccupied with other things. In other words, it's not just the passing of time that makes you more holy. This, this is not a, a passive process. In fact, he said it, it's something that gets pursued, right? You pursue this. And sometimes I think that our tendency in the midst of hardship and difficulty is to become morally lax. To feel that our troubles give us some kind of, uh, some sort of entitlement. Some sort of excuse that exempts us from the need to chase after holiness like every other Christian. Somehow in our, our situation, we, we're, we don't need to do that. We convince ourselves. But nothing could be farther from the truth. During times that we are faint and we are weary, we need to consciously strive and help others to strive for godliness. And I'm not talking about some kind of surface righteousness that ignores the idolatry and the pride in our lives and, and neglects the issues of, of the heart. But I'm also not talking about some sort of mental understanding or comprehension of our depravity and our need for the gospel of grace. Because it's, it's more than just shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, we're just a bunch of rotten sinners in need of God's mercy. Well, we need to admit that. We need to believe that. We are sinful people. We are selfish people sometimes. And we do need God's mercy. But we're talking about an active pursuit of holiness. We're not talking about just 
something that's going on in your head. There, there's a lot of people today, there's, we just need to live the gospel every day. Just need to live the gospel every day. We just need to live the gospel every day. We do need to live the gospel every day. But that's not just something going on in our minds. This is something that we actively chase and pursue in our lives. It is an active pursuit of holiness. Resisting those things that are sinful and which lead us away from the Lord and actively pursuing those things that are pleasing to the Lord and that are more in step with the perfect humanity of Jesus. This is absolutely critical for a variety of reasons, but notice one he mentions here in verse 14, because without holiness, you won't see the Lord. What is stated negatively here is stated positively over in the Beatitudes in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, right? And interestingly, notice the next verse, Matthew 5, 9, right after that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What does James say in James three seventeen? But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable. So these, these things, they, they always go together. Peace and purity, peace and holiness, peace and sanctification. It's love towards God when it speaks of holiness and sanctification. Your pursuit of Christ, that is more Godward when he's talking about peace. He's not talking about your peace with God. He's talking about your peace with your neighbor. It's about your peace with others in the body of Christ. Even peace toward those who are unbelievers. If it's possible Right? Paul says in Romans, if it's possible, live at peace with all men. So he's saying, you are at peace with God, now be a peacemaker. You are righteous because of Christ, now act like it. In all of your adversity, God is at work designing a peaceable fruit of righteousness. Therefore, pursue peace. And pursue the holiness that God is pursuing in you by his discipline. That's the whole purpose, he said, of his discipline. is so that you would share in his holiness. So God is at work because he is at work doing these things. Take heart, but get to work. He's saying be encouraged. He's saying strengthen, be strengthened. Get a second win, but, but work, get busy pursuing these things. These are priorities. We must learn the runner's lean. This is the way to finish the race and to finish it well. Stretching ourselves forward to peace. Extending our entire beings toward holiness. Because ultimately it is peacemakers and holy people who finish the race. So we need to grasp a biblical perspective of our trial. We need to get after peace and holiness. And the third and final essential response when you hit the wall is to guard against defilement from within the church. Guard against defilement from within the church. Interesting. The note of of concern and responsibility for others seems to be implicit in in almost all these admonitions, especially in verses 15 to 17. He says, see to it. And that that term means to look diligently. It's actually, actually, it means to oversee. We derive the word bishop from this word. So it's the word that we use to describe elders in the church, pastors in the church, saying that they are overseers. This is where this this is a very similar word. And what it's saying, think about it this way: your elders are not the only ones that are overseeing your Christian life. Because he's not writing to the elders. He's not charging the leaders of the church. Who's he charging here? All professing believers in in the community, right? He's, he's, he's addressing all those in the church. So he's saying that even though your spiritual leaders do provide oversight in your life, they do feed you. They do guard against false teachers and those kinds of things, that there ought to be a level of oversight that's going on between believers in the body of Christ. That's why it's okay for someone to come to me in the church and say, hey, Joel, i got to talk to you about this we got a problem. <laughs> I see this in your life. Because it's, it's not me, the overseer, and them here. It, that's, there, that's a part of the relationship, but I'm a brother. Maybe I'm a brother to this person, right? So we're, we're, we're here. And they could just be a fellow believer coming and saying, hey, I'm exercising what, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. 
I'm getting involved in your life. I want you to pursue peace. I want you to pursue Christ. I want you to pursue sanctification. And if that's not going on, I want to know. So there's this this diligent looking on. This is what ought to be going on in the body of Christ. And he says in verse 15, see to it several things. That no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And that no there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. And so... In these verses, the author lays out a threefold warning against the defection of any individual member of the Christian community. The first is short in general. The second is longer and contains this Old Testament allusion to the danger of apostasy in Israel. And the third is the longest and is based on the specific example of Esau. So he says initially in verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. He's talking here about the real danger that some professing believers will fall away from that profession. Not that they will lose their salvation, but that they will fail to persevere and in that demonstrate that they were never truly saved. They will fall back and abandon grace and leave the race. Then he says, See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be Defiled. He's, he's referring figuratively here to a person that causes trouble, that, that agitates in, in, in the body. And I hear this in, in, in counseling circles a lot, Christian, Christian counseling. Uh, people refer to, they'll go to this passage this, and start talking about the root of bitterness, and they describe it as if it's some sort of heart motive or it's an attitude of unforgiveness, and it's not. It's a person, it's an individual, or it's a group of people. And we know this because the author's words here are virtually a quotation from Deuteronomy 29. If you want to turn there, Deuteronomy 29, this is a covenant uh, at Moab. Moses gathers the, the, the congregation of Israel. And in, uh, beginning there in verse 14, he says, Now not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold which they had with them. Verse 18, so that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root, here it is, bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry And the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. So the writer of Hebrews says, see to it that none of your fellow contestants fall behind in the race and turn away from the prize that is before them. Again, it's about the the, the threat of, of, of apostasy. And this is not the first time this warning has surfaced in the book of Hebrews. You could find it in chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 4. And, and verses following that, chapter 10, verses 26 and following. And here it is once more. It's, it's the peril of apostasy. It's about dropping out of the race. Rejecting Christ. Rejecting God as verse, verse 25 of Hebrews 12 states, who warns from heaven. And where there are symptoms that such a situation may be developing in the church, attentiveness and searching self-examination are, the, are urgent necessities. Because even one person discouraged because of the hardships of the contest, who hardens into a bitter and a rebellious spirit and abandons the race, could, by his or her apostasy, cause serious harm to the body of Christ. 
Finally, he says in verse 16, see to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. We know from Genesis 26 that Esau took two foreign women as wives and that this made life, it says there, bitter for his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. We also know that according to rabbinical tradition that Esau was a person that was considered to be unrestrained. He was, a, he was very sensual. He was a man, we could say, completely subject to his libido. He, he was immoral. And it says here he was godless. He was profane, or, or probably the, the best way to think about this is he was secular. He was a man who had no regard for God. Calvin says of such, quote, Those in whom the love of the, of the world so holds sway and prevails that they forget heaven as men who are carried away by ambition, addicted to money and riches, given over to gluttony, and entangled with other kinds of pleasures, and give the spiritual kingdom of Christ either no place or the last place in their concerns. You remember Esau. He despised his birthright, which in his case was to despise God, to insult the goodness and the grace of God. He was, sure, later on, he was filled with regret about selling his birthright. Uh, The scriptures even tell us that he lifted up his voice and he wept. But the question is this, did he repent? The answer is no. Because three verses later in Genesis 27, three verses after it tells us that he wept, It says this, that he, quote, bore a grudge against Jacob. He hated Jacob. And at that moment, he made plans in his heart to kill Jacob after their father's death. He became an embittered man, and he was just as governed by fleshly passions as he had been years before. So this wasn't godly sorrow, but worldly sorrow. Sorrow that mourns the loss, not sorrow that mourns the sin. So what does the writer of Hebrews encourage those to do that have hit the wall? Well, instead of getting preoccupied with your problem, he says, start looking out and start looking around. Start collecting the stragglers. Right? There's a lot of people in, in the body of Christ that are on the fringe. There are a lot of people that are not engaged in the body, that are struggling in their faith. Look for those people. This is the responsibility of everyone in the church. This is your task. It is your responsibility to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of the whole congregation. It is your responsibility to involve yourself in the body of Christ and to see that others go on in grace. It is your responsibility to receive that kind of loving care from others because we all need grace to finish the race. There have been and will be many who make a beginning in the Christian community but through fear of persecution or faint-heartedness and suffering are tempted to defect. And in time, some do. Some do turn away from the gospel. They turn away from the person of Christ. They fall short of true salvation. But the book of Hebrews cries out, do all that you can to prevent that from happening. In your own heart and in the hearts of the other people within this local church. So what should you do when you've hit the wall? How can you respond in a way that will keep you moving and making progress? How can you, what can you do to avoid despondency? Grasp a biblical perspective of your trial. Go after and track down peace and holiness and guard against defilement from within the church. Be renewed and gain fresh strength. God is pouring his grace into your life through his fatherly discipline. Don't fail to receive it. Drink in that grace. Don't trade the pain of God's discipline for the delights of the world and the passing pleasures of sin. Don't let your suffering discourage you and make you fall or tempt you to leave the track. Brothers and sisters, run the Christian, run the race of the Christian life no matter how 
hard the course. Get your second wind. Let us, let us, not me, not just you, let us run with endurance. It's about us, all of us, finishing the race together. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's stand. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the power of your word. And Lord, we are thankful for these encouragements and these admonitions. We're thankful, Lord, that when we are struggling in our Christian lives, when we feel like spiritually that we have hit a wall in the race of faith, that, Lord, you supply grace and mercy, enablement, power, hope, all that we need for life, in godliness. Lord, you not only give us a second wind, but a third wind and a fourth wind. And we plead with you, Lord, to just continue to do that, to continue to be gracious to us. Lord, help us in these times in our Christian lives to have a biblical perspective of our trial, to get things in perspective, or to see our situation and our circumstances and our own hearts the way that you see them. Lord, help us to not let ourselves off the hook But help us, Lord, that that we might diligently and consciously pursue peace, that we might be peacemakers, and that we would pursue sanctification and pursue purity and pursue holiness in our lives. And that, Lord, we would become more aware of others in the body of Christ, in this church, that we would become more sensitive, more aware, more concerned about their relationship with you and that, Lord, you would use us in their lives to encourage them, to motivate them, to strengthen them, to pray for them, to serve them in any way that we can, Lord, that we might all finish this race with endurance. And, Lord, I pray for anyone who might be here this morning. I'm sure there are are, are many teens, students, adults, parents, children that, Lord, have been completely enveloped in the culture of the church in Christianity for years, but who have not in simple repentance and faith come to Jesus Christ for salvation. We pray, God, that they would cry out to you for mercy and that, Lord, you would be mighty and powerful to save them and to forgive them and to transform their lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.